actress Katherine Heigl, a passionate animal advocate who has saved over 16,000 dogs, says she's been seeing more issues with dogs' joints, odors, and health than ever before. She believes there's a link between canine health and diet. After extensive research, she developed Superfood Complete, a dog food pack with over 30 wholesome ingredients, including superfoods beneficial for your furry friend. Superfood Complete isn't just about deliciousness, though dogs love the taste. It's about supporting overall well-being. In addition to providing a healthy option for your pet, Badlands Ranch, the maker of Superfood Complete, also supports the Jason DeBus Heigl Foundation, which helps rescue countless dogs and find them loving homes. Dogs across America are trying this food and loving it. Go to BadlandsRanch.com slash MC901 and order right now to get up to 50% off your regular priced order with a 90-day money-back guarantee. If you want your dog to experience all these incredible things, go to BadlandsRanch.com slash MC901 today. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Mail checks, invoices, documents, and everything you need to keep your business running. Get rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS. And with the mobile app, you can take care of mailing on the go. Make the same no-brainer decisions as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up at Stamps.com with code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM. The first 911 call in America was placed in Haleyville, Alabama in 1968. It was a test run that was dialed by Alabama Speaker of House Rankin Fight and was answered by U.S. Representative Tom Bevel. The reason 911 was created in the first place has a few different reasons. In 1957, the National Association of Fire Chiefs wanted to have a single number to use nationally to report fires. In 1967, the President's Commission on Law Enforcement and Administration of Justice also recommended the same thing. One phone number to report any emergency. Another notable reason that has some speculation is a rape and murder of a New York City bartender in 1964. The speculation comes from the possibility that as many as 38 people in some way had witnessed the attack and didn't call for help because at that time, if you wanted police response, you had to know the phone number specifically for the local precinct, which in New York at that time, there were dozens of them. Implementation of 901 nationwide took decades to accomplish. When I was a kid in the early 90s and moved to a rural town in West Tennessee, I heard people talk about how 911 had just become an option to call for emergencies. By the year 1987, still only 50% of America had the ability to call 911. The point in all this is that 911 has had a decades-long history in getting to where it is today. In this episode, I'm going to have a couple of what I would call vintage 911 calls. These are both from the early 90s. They're both rather famous calls in the crime-slash-911 world, and both calls and the details surrounding them are pretty difficult to listen to for more than one reason. As always, listener discretion is advised. Welcome back to Music City 911.
September 21st, 1991, time 22.13 hours. This will be a 
where this call got disconnected before talking about what happened here the recording of the dispatcher calling back will also be played i would like to make note though that this being very early in the 90s things weren't done the same way as they are today in some places a lot of agencies now mine included have adopted policies that prevent dispatchers from calling back domestic situations with the reasons being to try and not alert the suspect that the police have been notified so the situation hopefully will not escalate. Hello. Hello, Lisa. Hold on the phone. Um, my daddy did. He just didn't want to get on the resident because he's drunk. He's got the baby and now he's in the living room now. My mom shut the door and locked it. I don't know why. They're arguing out. Put the baby down, BM. Lisa. What? Okay. I can't breathe out. Lisa. Let me talk to your mother. This is the police. Yes, it is the police. What's going on? I'm the father of the baby. I am. I have not heard anybody in this house. Why, why is that child screaming that way if you haven't heard anybody? Because Let me talk to her mother now. Let me talk to her mother right now. Okay, here's her mother. Have you been drinking also? No. 
What is your name? Cindy Floyd. Not me, then. Come back out of that room, I'm going to beat your ass. Honey, the baby's head. Go. I mean it. Where are the kids at now? One's right here next to me, and the other one's in a room. Mommy, you want to stop? He's not, honey. Just be quiet, okay? Come here. How many kids do you have in your house? Three. calls are now referred to as the Lisa tape. The caller, six-year-old Lisa Floyd, called police after witnessing her stepfather beating her mother and siblings. This wasn't the first time this had happened. Later in life, Lisa recalled she had to call the police what she said hundreds of times, and because of that and other issues, Child Protective Services had to be called to the home 23 times. As much as I searched, I couldn't find out what happened as a result of the call. I'm not sure if the stepfather, Pierre, was arrested or not. I would hope so, but given the amount of times Lisa had to call police and the amount of visits by Child Protective Services, even if he was arrested, I don't believe he stayed in jail very long. Lisa is now a grown woman. She was tracked down at one point by a domestic violence advocate to see how she fared in life. Unfortunately, when she finally met her, Lisa was in the same sort of relationship she was all too familiar with as a child. Years later, Lisa wrote about what was going on in her life. I'll be reading a few paragraphs directly from what she wrote. I'm Lisa, a survivor with a future, because of my past. I'm not sure I'd be here had I lost the will to fight. Night after night, I was tested. 
I saw my mother abused in ways I still can't believe. Blood on the walls, scuffling in the kitchen. My skin still crawls when I think back to those nights. Life was painful, and the torture was repetitive. If it wasn't the ongoing violence at home, it was the name-calling at school. There was no escape. I started to believe I wasn't worthy. I felt like a failure, destined for nothingness. I didn't believe I could change my life or my situation. I really believed that because of what I felt growing up, I ended up in the very same type of violent relationship. I had such low self-esteem. My friends were moving on and doing great things with their lives, while I felt like the weight of my traumatized past was creeping up on me. When I started dating my ex, it was definitely to escape. I needed to be part of something. I was tired of feeling like I had nothing. Within the first three months of our relationship, he was hitting me. I was abused much in the same way I saw my mother abused. Beaten, humiliated, and cheated on. I spent four years living in hell. I didn't realize I was repeating the cycle. The relationship felt like my own personal dilemma, and I didn't feel like it was in any way connected to my childhood. I think if I would have allowed myself to make that connection, I would have had to have realized I was in a bad place a lot sooner than I did. But I wasn't ready to give it up at that point. The more my relationship became my identity, the harder it felt to get away. I spent a lot of time with him and his family. We did everything together. I thought that was how it was supposed to be in a relationship. Besides, I didn't feel like I had too many alternatives. My family wasn't exactly thrilled to have me around. They seemed happy that somebody else was taking care of me. Even if I was hurt, I was wanted. She continued the writing later on by saying, The night I left was my life's turning point. It was letting go of all the false comfort of trying to survive in a dysfunctional situation. I would never let myself be a ward of anyone again. I filed for a restraining order and never looked back. My journey isn't over. I still have many lessons to learn and obstacles to overcome. I'm just not afraid to take them on. There will always be good and bad. That's really the only thing you can count on. The cycle proved that, and so did breaking it. I've not been in another violent relationship since. I am now free to make the choices I want and achieve the goals I set. Knowing that I have broken the cycle has made the biggest impact in my life, and having people who saw in me the makings of success have made it that much more meaningful. Had my shift in beliefs and the resiliency inside not been nurtured, I may have been stuck spinning my wheels in the same destructive pattern indefinitely. I personally believe that was a very powerful and brave thing to write, and glad that Lisa shared that with the world. If you or anyone you know is involved some way with domestic violence, don't wait until it's too late. Call for help. Don't be afraid to call police. And if for some reason you don't believe calling police is the way for you, if you're in America, please at least call the National Domestic Violence Hotline. They can be reached at one 800 799 7233 or by texting the word START to 88788. Now in county, what is your emergency? Yes, I just saw a shooting, please. 
Okay, do you know if anybody's been shot? Yes, I see the way they're in her garage right now. Is somebody shot? Yes. Stay on the line. Let me connect you with the ambulance service. Hold on. <laughs> Okay. And the lady's name is Farah. I know her name. I don't know her last name. 
It's Constable Precinct 4, ma'am. If you have any problems, we'll call us back or call them back. Okay. Let me give you that phone number, Constable Precinct 4. Okay, I, I, none of my lights are on. I don't want to turn my okay. lights on. Okay, we'll call us okay. back on 911. Are you going to hang up with me? Oh, do you want me to stay on the line? I, this is, oh, okay, I, I can hang up. Okay, no, that's okay. I'm, I'm just very scared because I know these people just, my lights are on. Do you think they saw my house? Okay. Hold on just a moment. Oh, God. Should, should we go over there and see her? Darren, Darren, please don't go over there. Okay. Okay, ma'am. Yes. I'm going to transfer you to Constable Precinct 4 so they can talk to you, okay? Okay. Since this is an in progress, you might have some information that they need. Thank you. Don't go over there, sweetie. Hold on, ma'am. Okay. My roommates are going to go over there to see her. Ma'am, I have precinct four on the line. Okay. Precinct four, go ahead, sir. Okay. Can you tell me what's going on? Yeah, I just saw a shooting. I was in my living room nursing my baby, and I looked at my window, and, and a, our, our, our neighbor was outside her garage, and she was shot two times. By a passing motorist? No, the guy, it looked like he was either in her garage waiting for my, my in her garage waiting for her, or I just saw his pants, and then I saw a black man, and he was dressed in black, and he was waiting, and he jumped into a car. What kind of a car? It was a silver car. My husband gave a 911 description, but my husband just pulled up into her driveway. He can see her. And, and she's down, and my husband's going right down to see if he can help her. Okay, your husband is not armed or anything? No, no. The only thing he has is me. Okay, did y'all see who did it? No, all I saw was the pants, and then I saw the gentleman, but I can't give a description of the guy. Okay, but he was in a silver Toyota? Yes, and a hat back there, and so it's about, it had one headlight out or, or, or one something out, my husband knows. He's over there with her right now. Okay, and he shot her twice? Yes, I heard two shots, and I heard her scream, and I looked out my window. And my lights were all on, and these people saw inside my house. Okay, my you're Elizabeth Campbell, right? You are Elizabeth Campbell? What, what did you say? Your she name. is breathing. Huh? She shot in the head, my husband said. She shot in her head. Yeah, that woman has been shot in the head, and she's still alive. And she does have three children. I do not know if the children are home. That's the lady. It, no, it's not this. It's, uh, what you call it? The lady that called it in. I'm, I'm still here. Huh? Okay, there's a police officer coming. I see someone coming. Yeah, oh, dear Jesus, help this woman. Okay, we uh, got got a unit over there. Okay. Okay. You, okay, thank you. Okay, and uh, you, you, you need to advise them what y'all did see, okay? Okay. All right. Thank bye, you. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. This is another call where things in a lot of places have changed over the years. You were probably just as frustrated as me listening to the caller get passed around from agency to agency on this. Back then, and even still today in some jurisdictions, 911 call centers weren't consolidated. By that, I mean if you called 911, your first point of contact might have been the local police or local fire department. If you have a house on fire and call... You might have gotten in touch with the police first, who would then have to transfer you to the fire department, which would be a delay that could be very costly. In this call, 
the person reporting this shooting was shifted around multiple times. When the caller finally got on the line with the right agency, police and paramedics were dispatched to the scene where they found a woman in her 30s laying dead from two gunshot wounds to the head. Detectives later arrived and started questioning witnesses. As they started to gather information, a months-long investigation would unravel an incredibly disturbing story of how this woman was killed. The victim, Farah Frada, was born in 1961 in Surrey, England. She later moved from England to Texas with her parents. After arriving there, she took a job as a ticketing agent for American Airlines. While there, she became attracted to another employee by the name of Robert Frada, otherwise known as Bob. Bob was sort of a playboy. He was a bodybuilder, dated a lot of women. He had moved to Texas from New York and was at one point a police officer in Missouri City, Texas. After about a year-long courtship, the two married in 1983. They ended up having three children together, and from the outside, everything seemed normal and fine. From the inside, though, it was anything but. The night of the murder, Bob was at church with his three children. When he arrived home, he found police all around his home. He said when he first got there, he thought it was some sort of a drug raid. When he was starting to be questioned by police, he showed very little, if any, emotion. This continued even just days after the murder, when Bob was interviewed in a parking lot. He was shown on camera smiling and even winking. He actually seemed in very good spirits. But he couldn't have killed his wife. He had a solid alibi. He was in church. How did Farah become a murder victim in her own garage? Investigators saw that this wasn't some random act of violence. There was no sign of robbery, nothing that resembled a carjacking attempt, no sign of rape or any other type of sexual assault. This was simply murder. They started looking at who was closest to her, and that would be her husband. Backing up a bit further, by 1992, Farah had filed for divorce. She endured years of trauma and abuse in various forms and finally reached her limit. There was a huge battle for the divorce, as well as custody of the children. The murder happened just eight days before the divorce was set to be final. During the divorce proceedings, the type of person Bob was started to show. Fair described what her private relationship with Bob was like. Years earlier, he had told Farah that sex with her no longer excited him. He wanted to have an open relationship so he could have sex with whoever he wanted and encouraged her to do the same. Because of her family values and generally being against divorce, she reluctantly agreed. This is just the tip of the iceberg, though. She listed several sexually deviant acts that he would make her do. He wanted her to engage in sex with other women while he watched and masturbated. He also wanted her to choke him and hit him in the stomach while this was going on. As if this wasn't enough, he wanted Farah to urinate and defecate on his face and in his mouth while masturbating. And he wanted these things daily. After divorce was filed for, Bob complained that he was always broke because he was having to pay a large amount of child support. While in the gym, he was telling a lot of his friends about this. He started asking around about the possibility of someone that might be willing to kill his wife. 
Later, he stated this was all just a joke and that he was only saying that out of frustration with the situation. After doing this for a while, he finally found someone that agreed to kill his wife. He met up with a Joseph Prostash and worked out a deal to give up his Jeep as payment for the murder. Prostash then enlisted an 18-year-old man by the name of Howard Gidry to help. On the night of the murder, Prostash drove Gidry to the house and waited for Farah to arrive home. Once she was in the garage, Gidry ran up behind her and shot her in the head once. He was about to run away, but noticed she was still alive, and while she was on the ground, he shot her in the head again. Five months after the murder, detectives finally had enough to arrest Bob and his co-conspirators. At trial, witness after witness gave good information about how Bob had orchestrated the murder, and when the jury was asked to deliberate, they only did so for about an hour. Bob and the two others were guilty and all sentenced to death. Years after the conviction, Bob still claimed he was innocent. He even somehow created a website claiming such, and also, to show what sort of narcissistic person he really was, he suggested a change to our government, that it would be a monarchy, and that he would be king. After being convicted in 1996, Bob was put on death row. A lengthy appeal process occurred where he at one point won an appeal, but a second jury once again found him guilty. Just a little over a month ago, on January 10th, 2023, he was executed by lethal injection in his prison in Huntsville, Texas. He was 65 years old. Farah was just 33 years old when she was murdered. This was a pretty incredible look into a couple of older 911 calls. I'm glad you could take this journey into the past with me. Before I finish up, though, I'd like to play a trailer for another podcast, this one called Obscura. It's hosted by a friend of mine named Justin, and without trying to detail what goes on in the show, I'll let him tell you about it. This is Justin, host of Obscura, a true crime podcast. Do you need a true crime fix? Obscura has atmospheric music and sound design. The show shines a spotlight on the darker things in life by taking a narrative approach to covering real murders, mysteries, missing persons, and more. What do I mean by narrative approach? On Obscura, we structure our episodes in such a way that they paint a narrative in your mind. With a heavy focus on victims and less-known cases, each week I'll take you on a deep dive into the darker side of history, mystery, and murder. Be warned, Obscura is not for the squeamish. Shocking crimes are covered in full detail, and real court and 911 audio is used when possible. If you're a true crime fan with a taste for the hard stuff, then Obscura has you covered. Each month sees the release of Obscura Black Label. Black Label is reserved for only the darkest cases. Finally, if you're a listener that likes a binge, Obscura has a large library of episodes ready for you to download now. You can find Obscura, a true crime podcast, on your podcast app of choice. Just search Obscura True Crime, and you can't miss our logo. If you'd like to help support my show, the best way to do so is by sharing it with other people who like to listen but might not know about the show. If you know someone who likes the true crime genre, tell them about my show. I sure appreciate it. Another way to help is becoming a member over at Patreon. Over there, I put out ad-free episodes and bonus content. 
Some are mini episodes, some extended cuts, and some extra material simply too long to put on the regular show. A link to my Patreon is in the show's description. Also, you can leave a five-star rating and review wherever you listen to the show. Thank you all for listening, and until next time, for Music City 911, I'm Brandon, and you all have a good one.